Please join me in prayer. God, you are faithful and good. Thank you that this word is, it has energized me this week to look at this word through the lens that you've given us today as we've looked at these big questions, these big things that people in our community and in in the wider east side are wrestling with. So thank you for what Jesus did and what he said. Thank you for each person in this story. Thank you for each person in this room. May we enter into this now uh, knowing that you will meet us, confident in your grace, relying on the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit to shape and form each of us. May it form us, may it form our kids in their classes, and may it be a transformative time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have to say this at the very beginning. Yes, it was very exciting last night to watch the Astros win game six, mostly because the defeat of the Yankees brings joy to God's heart. So, yeah, I mean, you don't even have to be a baseball fan to agree with that. Uh, my children and my family are celebrating the Astros victory by wearing the appropriate colors today. I thought about wearing a jersey up here, and I was uh, consulted by a wise person that that would just grind a little bit into the hearts of Mariners fans. So it's an exciting day in our family. It was a late night last night, too, but the best kind of late night. Uh, we are uh, entering into a sermon series. We've been going through this sermon series called Portrait. And so if you've been with us, you kind of know like what we've been trying to address. If you haven't been... What we've been looking at is uh, if our community looks at who Jesus is, people outside the church, people we work beside, people that live next door to us, they might see a presentation of Jesus Christ, both through the church and through individual Christians, that just feels distorted. Like, it's not the most accurate presentation of who Jesus is. Uh, We've used the analogy of abstract art, right? When you look at a piece of abstract art, a depiction of something through that lens might look a little bit like what it's supposed to be. It might look like a flower. It might look like a portrait. But it's just, it's not quite as we would hope it would be. And so what we've been doing is looking looking at different distortions that are out there about who Jesus is, about what the church believes, about Christians in general, and just trying to kind of shape that and mold that so that we can show a clearer picture, not necessarily of who we are, although that's certainly part of it, but of who Jesus is. So our subject today is the topic of justice. And if you follow along, uh, there's an outline in your bulletin. If you followed along with the study guide, which I would encourage you to do so, they're on the welcome table out in the lobby. Uh, you'll be, kind of be able to see where we're going each week and kind of have a heads up as to what the subject may be for that day. Today, it's the subject of justice. And that's a, uh, maybe a very common term for many of us. Uh, if you grew up in the Seattle area, if you grew up in an area similar to this kind of climate, politically, culturally, justice is not necessarily a bad word, although there are parts of the world and parts of the church where that is certainly the case. Justice, in the sense that we may kind of think of it in our normal everyday life, is righting wrongs. That's going to be like a really simple definition of justice to start. Justice is simply righting things that are wrong. For example, uh, I grew up in a family of lawyers, and so justice is just kind of the waters that I swam in. Uh, One of my favorite memories actually was when I was in college. I was pretty sure I was going to go to law school. That was kind of like my target, right? And so my dad, who's an attorney for 41 years, invited me to assist him in a trial. So I think I was like 20, I was 19, and he walked me through the whole process of getting ready for his case and interviewing his client and going over this 
big file folder that he had with actual paper of all these different steps that he took in the process. The case was uh, a woman who was injured in a car accident. The person that had caused the accident was working for a company, so there was just all kinds of insurance stuff in there. What I remember about my dad's sense of justice, though, was that he was so thorough and so diligent in trying to be a good steward of this client's case. He wanted the very best for his clients every single time. And I got to kind of have a front row seat into his process of doing that. I also got to have a front row seat when I assisted him at trial of watching the opposing counsel, the the bad guy attorney, that's a technical term, the bad guy attorney blew it. The guy didn't know anything about the case compared to what my dad knew. He was fumbling with his notes. He didn't really know what was going on. You could kind of see the judge looking at him like, all right, all right, young man, like get your stuff together. And my dad, not that he was a perfect person by any means, but he demonstrated this commitment to making sure that justice was achieved for his client. It was a really powerful example to me. Now, that's my background with justice. Other people have different backgrounds. I have a friend whose entire family has had brushes with the law or has been incarcerated. Like, this friend would say that justice was not a good word around where he grew up because someone was always getting in trouble, someone was always doing something that broke some kind of law, different family members went to jail at different times. For that person, justice was not a noble thing. Justice was a hard thing. Just yesterday in the Seattle Times, there was an article about, uh, it, was, it was a response to a letter, but someone wrote in about where is justice when we face things like the college admission scandal, you know this, with the different celebrities. Where is justice when someone who's participating in that gets a two-week sentence, right, compared to all the injustices that have been perpetrated by corporate scandals and the 2008 financial meltdown and all these things where literally no one has gone to jail. Like, there seems to be a gap there is essentially what this letter was saying. Where is the justice in that? Where is the righting of wrongs? That's what our culture cares about. It's a good thing to care about. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. Nowhere in that do most of our friends and coworkers away from the church think that the church has anything to say about justice. For most people in the Seattle area, they think, okay, justice, that's the responsibility of the legal system, that's the responsibility of the actual justice department, that's the responsibility of lawyers and cops. Why would the church have anything to say about this? Why would God, if there is a God, have anything to say about justice? This is personal responsibility. We got to make this happen. Real people are wrestling with this. And so I believe that it's actually really important for the church to be able to say, we do care about that. Not to prove ourselves, but to say, look, justice comes from God. God cares deeply about justice. God is a God of justice, and he is also a God of mercy. So if you follow along in that study guide, if you follow along in your, uh, your bulletin today, I'll give you kind of a heads up as to what our thesis is, and then I'll give you an outline. But we're going to try to develop this. The distortion that we're addressing is this. The distortion is God is unjust and unmerciful. That's what we're saying. A lot of people believe, not everybody, but a lot of people believe this, or that God just doesn't care about justice. The reality is God is both deeply just and wonderfully merciful. He is deeply just and he is wonderfully merciful. The outline that's there in your bulletin goes like this. We'll talk through this story from John chapter 8, setting the trap, the real trial, and then an impossible calling. 
you, I want to encourage you to take notes. I also want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to pick up a Bible at the back table. If you don't own a Bible, please take one. We'd love for you to have that gift today. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 8, so if you want to open to that, if you want to get your Bible app going on your phone, we're going to read through various parts of the text and just kind of go through it line by line. And I love doing this. I was really looking forward to teaching on justice this week. I was especially grateful when God brought this story into our teaching team meeting so that we could really enter in through it narratively. So turn with me to John chapter 8. I'll set the setting for us, and then we'll walk through the different verses together. John chapter 8 is a kind of middle point in Jesus's ministry. He's come on the scene. People are, are aware that he is out there. He is teaching incredible things. He's going throughout the Holy Land. He's performing miracles. He's healing people. And so he comes to Jerusalem, a very important city in his faith. And he comes to the temple, a very holy place in his faith. And he's taking time to worship. He's coming to church. Maybe it's on a Sunday morning. Maybe not. But he is coming into church like many of us did today. And he's followed by a crowd, as he often is, people that wanted to hear about his teaching, people that wanted to listen for him or to be a part of what was going on. But then there's a second crowd that comes up. The crowd is composed of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's kind of a blanket term for religious officials, people who we might associate with pastors and religious authorities. There were some onlookers that came in with this other crowd. And then there was a woman, a lone woman, who is brought in under some pretty dire circumstances. Now, before we get into her story, I want to talk about who's in the crowd and why they would even have been involved in this. What does this have to do with justice? I'm getting to it. The Pharisees and the scribes are part of this crowd that comes in. During that time, Pharisees and scribes, these are religious people, right? These are, these are like pastors. These are religious authorities. They would have had an informal role in the Jewish community as judges, as like the citizen patrol. Did anyone grow up with citizen patrol in your neighborhood, right? Like the old guy driving his Crown Vic around with the magnetic sticker that said citizen patrol on it. I grew up with that. And they were just there to kind of keep an eye on things, right? Let's watch. Let's like make sure nothing's going on. Not actual police officers, but people that could kind of call the cops if there's anything going on. That's a little bit like what the Pharisees and scribes are. They have an informal role of mediating civil disputes between members of the Jewish community. So, if your neighbor has a dog that is barking all night long, you go to the Pharisees and the scribes and you say, hey, can you, can you get him to get, come on, like the dog, it's got to go, like knock it off, right? Dog's got to get a new home, this is a problem. If your property line was in dispute, if your neighbor dumped his trash all over your front yard, you went and saw the Pharisees and the scribes to mediate minor civil disputes. It's like small claims court. None of you ever go to small claims court, by the way. So the citizen patrol comes, and they bring this woman to Jesus. And I'm going to start reading in verse 3. It says this. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. I'll stop there for just a moment. Who's this woman? What's, What's happening here? Uh, as is often kind of my bent, I like to give names to characters in the Bible that don't have names. So we're going to call this woman Lisa. So Lisa has been brought before Jesus and brought before this mob. And if you think about what it just says here in the text, verse 3, she was made to stand before the mob, a crowd of angry men. 
She was caught in the very act of adultery, verse 4. We don't know exactly what that means, but some scholars believe if she was actually guilty of this accusation, she might have literally been drugged from the bed in which the adultery was being committed. She might have been wearing a sheet. She might have been wearing less than that. This is a humiliating, painful, shameful moment that she will never forget for the rest of her life. And we need to be able to stop and feel the shame and the brokenness of this moment because when we think about justice, justice always involves real people. It always involves real people. No matter what your cause is, no matter what the thing is that you want to get behind, you want to alleviate poverty, you want to work on racial reconciliation, you want to step into these very good and important things, we can never forget that justice involves people. Real people. Real hurt, like what she's experiencing here. So her position in her culture, just as a woman in the ancient Near East, she has no voice, no authority. Women were not considered to be, even be full status as citizens. They were kind of considered like half of a person. She's considered to be property. She has no power. She has no ace up her sleeve. She is literally trapped between an aggressive mob and this guy that someone in the mob called a teacher that she doesn't know. It probably feels awful to be trapped between two very different power sources like that. And so this is a real person. This is really unfair. Where is justice in this? Look with me at verse 5. The crowd goes on. Probably one of the Pharisees is saying this. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, to kill this woman by stoning. Now, Jesus, what do you say? This is an impossible situation for Jesus. They've already called him teacher, which means they're at least willing to tip their cap to him. Say, yeah, you probably know a thing or two about the Old Testament. You're probably seminary trained. You probably know something. All right, smart guy, what do you think we should do right now? Do we keep our laws, the laws of Moses, which are sacred and important to our people, and kill her and end her life? Or do we break the law, betray our faith, and not kill her? What is evident in their claim is how little they understand what justice actually is. If you go back and look at the law they're referencing, it's referenced in two different places in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20. When they say the law of Moses, they're covering over a big, big swath of the Old Testament. But specifically, the laws of Moses that relate to adultery are in Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20. There is a key component that is missing from their case. When you were involved in the Jewish community and adultery happened, you were supposed to bring two people to court to talk about adultery. Because how many people does adultery usually involve? Two, right? It takes two to tango. How many people are actually on trial in this moment? One. One. This crowd is choosing to actually jettison the call of justice to achieve what they think justice should be. They are choosing to break their own laws, disregard due process, disregard what's actually supposed to happen in order to try to trap Jesus and get what they think they want. Without that second person, this is an illegal proceeding, and that's the trap. This section refers to a trap. That's the trap that we're talking about. It's a trap that's set for Jesus. Lisa is the pawn, so where is justice in this moment? If we continue on, we'll see it. So let's look at verse 6. Now we're moving on to the second section where we talk about the real trial. This is verse 6. This is where the narrator breaks in. Very helpful. 
it says this. I'll just read the first part. They said this, the mob said this, to test Jesus so that they might have some charge to bring against him. One of the unique features of John's gospel is the narrator breaking in from time to time. Think of it like the Wonder Years with Fred Savage when Kevin, his older self, is navigating things that happen in his life. It's so helpful to have this. Here's why. The narrator tells them Jesus is actually on trial here. That's what he's saying. Jesus is on trial. It's not Lisa. It's an illegal proceeding. It's set up as a trap. And glory to God, this is the perfect scenario for Jesus to actually lay down an important lesson about justice. It is not an impossible situation for Jesus Christ. It is not something that he cannot use for his purposes. And if we operate under that distortion that we talked about, that God is unjust, that he's unmerciful, we have to presume that that version of God is distant, doesn't care about how human beings feel, not involved in our life. This is deism, right? This confronts the idea of deism by showing a God who is intimately involved in these proceedings. Jesus does not mess around when it comes to justice. When he came on the scene years before, Luke quotes this in Luke chapter 4. We can put that up on the screen. He walks through aspects of his calling as the Messiah that are about justice. These are visions of the kingdom of God, but these are things that people do when they want to pursue the justice of God. Jesus has said this from the beginning. I am about these things. I am the Messiah, and I have come to bring good news to the poor, to bring sight to the blind, to align myself with the marginalized, and to seek the shalom of the whole kingdom. These are aspects of Christ's character that he is simply living into in this moment. So we might be thinking, great, he's going to get up and he's going to give a great speech about justice. He's going to put these Pharisees in their place. He's going to show them what's what. What does he actually do? Look at verse 6. Look at the tail end of verse 6. It's time for the speech. It's time for the moment when you tell everybody about how much you understand justice, right? It says this, 6, the second half, Jesus bent down. And wrote with his finger on the ground. What? This guy's all about justice? This guy's all about the kingdom of God? He's all about setting wrongs right? Why is he doodling on the ground? He does it twice? It comes up again in verse 8? What in the world? How could we possibly take this seriously? How could one of our friends, far from God, outside of the church, look at Jesus in this moment and say, Oh yeah, he's taking justice seriously, sure. He is. It just doesn't look like that. Three realizations we need to arrive at. The first is, Jesus knows that this trial is a sham, and so he rises above it. He knows it's a sham. He says so later in John chapter 8 and verse 17. He reminds them that they're supposed to have the dude for the prosecution to go on, and they ain't got the dude. So he knows that this is not coming together. This is not a real trial. This is a trap. He gets it. But what does it allow him to do? It allows him to rise above the immediacy of the aggression. Are you good at that? Are you good at that, church? Rising above the immediacy of the aggression that comes at you. When a kid is angry at you at home. When a coworker sends you a flame email. When you have a spirited discussion with a neighbor. Are we the kind of people who can kind of receive other people's angst and aggression and go, okay, I hear you, I hear you, but we don't elevate. They go low, we go high. 
Are you able to rise above the immediacy of the aggression in front of you? And could, you, could we be better at this? I could. Second thing we need to realize, Jesus is responding and not reacting. He's responding, not reacting. There is a huge difference between the two. When you respond, you think, you slow down, you get out of your lizard brain, you pray, and you surrender your decision, whatever it may be, before God. Everybody who's married in the room needs to get better at responding and not reacting. I know this is true because I need to get better at it. Reacting is simply when you snap off, when you do something, you just got to fire off that tweet, you got to have a snap response to whatever's in front of you. You are playing to the mob when you do that. We are playing to the mob. We are adding to the chaos of our day when we react and not respond. What helps Jesus respond? He knows the Old Testament. He knows the scripture. He knows that the through line of all the Old Testament is God's kingdom is coming and it will come with justice and righteousness and mercy. And this is not just one part of the Old Testament. This is Isaiah. This is the Psalms. This is Ezekiel. This is Amos. This is Micah. This is all throughout the scripture. He knows it. He lives into it in this moment and he is willing to be patient as justice plays out for Lisa. Are we willing to be patient when we feel a conviction? When you're like, oh, i got to do something about this. Sometimes there is a time to do that. But are we willing to be patient? Are we willing to play the long game and say, man, it breaks my heart that kids go to school hungry. And I want to play the long game and I want to be a part of solving that. Well, maybe it means we need to partner with a food bank. Or maybe it means we need to take pantry packs seriously. Maybe it means we need to get more involved in that important work of justice. Whatever it is, are you willing to take that, surrender it, submit it, hold it out before God? Take time to get it right, church. And finally, this is where we turn the page a little bit to mercy. Jesus is willing to focus on mercy even in the midst of this heated situation. And maybe that's what the doodling in the ground does for him. It gives him a chance to catch his breath, kind of say, okay, I need a minute to chew on this. Isn't it refreshing when you talk to someone and they go, you know, I'll think about that. I need a minute to chew on that. I find that refreshing because we have such an instantaneous response culture. It's actually gratifying to hear someone go, let me think about what you're saying. Let me give that two seconds of my mind. What's really going on here? Who's really in trouble? Let's go back to the story for a minute. It's Lisa. Jesus is not in trouble. He's fine. He's going to be okay. Lisa is the one that's in serious trouble here. And it isn't because she's necessarily guilty. Nowhere in the text, by the way, other than what Jesus says, is any kind of evidence presented that Lisa has actually committed what she's accused of. Nothing. She is being accused, but there is no evidence presented that she is guilty. So unless Jesus gets in between her and the mob, the mob wins. What happens if the mob wins? She dies. Painfully. Slowly. But if he stands in between the mob's punishment... In her, there's a different outcome. That's mercy. Webster's definition of mercy is you have the ability to punish and you choose not to. You have the power and the authority and the right to punish and you choose not to. That's the textbook definition of it. The mob looks to Jesus. They call him teacher. They're going to submit to his authority. We can punish her, Jesus. We got this. We understand what justice requires in this moment. And Jesus says, oh, do you? Because I don't think you do. Because this woman needs mercy. She does not need to be punished. Now, this is where we turn to part three, an impossible calling. That doesn't mean 
Oh, you silly friend, you know, stop committing adultery. Yeah, 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 go on. There is a pathway forward. That's what makes Jesus' justice, his mercy, different. It's not just you were forgiven for your sins. It is that, but it's more. And I need to read verses 9 through 11 to illustrate this point. It says this, when they heard it, remember Jesus says to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, stops them in their tracks. He writes on the ground again, verse 9, when they heard it, when the mob heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up, finished his doodle, and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. The impossible calling is the last phrase that Jesus uses, do not sin again. Inside and outside the church, we should look at statements like that that Jesus makes and go, that is impossible. It is impossible to go and sin no more. It just, it it can't. How many of us have ever tried to live perfectly? How long did that last? Probably the time it took you to think of it. It is impossible. And yet in Jesus Christ, whenever he calls us to something that is impossible, that's never a bad thing. Because perfect is not the point. Do you hear me, church? Perfect is not the point. The point, if we go a little bit further in John's gospel, is Jesus' greater concern for sin and for brokenness, which cannot belong in his kingdom. Look with me at chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. This is just a little while later, after the woman has been set free, after all the dust has settled. Jesus is having a conversation with some Jews who are following him, but they're trying to figure this thing out. What do we do with sin? Jesus says to them, I'll read in verse 34, Very truly I tell you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This isn't behavior modification. This is slavery. This is a pattern of engagement that will crush you and the people around you. Verse 35, the slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. And so if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus looks at Lisa and he says to her, you got to stop you got to stop. I love you too much to let you be where you are. You have to stop. you got to stop this pattern of jumping in other people's beds. you got to stop going around doing whatever it is you've been doing. He lays no judgment upon her. He says to her, you have to stop and this is your pathway forward. Because otherwise you will be a slave. Do you hear that, church? You will be a slave. To your sin. I will be a slave to my sin unless Jesus steps in and says, You got to stop. Have you ever had someone say that to you? You got to stop. This this is not going to work for you. Have you ever had someone intervene on behalf of someone you loved? If you've walked with someone through addiction, you know this story. Someone has to hit rock, stinking bottom, and then someone finally says to them, You got to stop. You got to stop drinking. You got to stop. With your drug use, you got to stop with the porn. You got to stop with the anger and the violence. This is not going to work out well for you or anybody you love. That is a statement about slavery. And I haven't had anybody say that to me lately, but I hope to be the kind of person that if someone came to me and said, You got to stop, that I would listen. 
And I hope to be the kind of person that has that voice into the lives of others that said, look, I love you, but you've got to stop. That's the mercy in this passage. That's where Jesus is saying, full weight of the punishment, full weight of the sin, it could fall on you, Lisa, but you've got to stop. You've got to do something else. You make a choice. And he gives her the pathway forward. That's where Jesus' justice and mercy are so different than this right and wrong paradigm. So much deeper, so much more robust, so much richer, because it puts the needs of a person front and center before God, the God who made them, and says, this is your pathway through this. Both justice and mercy are close to the heart of God. Jesus shows both to Lisa and to the crowd. And so what can we do differently? What, what, can, what can we adopt maybe as a next step? I want to encourage you to respond and not react. Maybe just write that down, respond, react. Take time in the week ahead to really hold that out before God, especially if you feel a call to justice. If you feel a call to righting wrongs, or as a theologian I really like puts it, God's justice is treating other people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. Treating other people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. If you are convicted about something in your world, someone that you need to help, some cause that you want to get behind, that's great. But would you respond and not react? Would you take time to pray and surrender that conviction to God? Whatever it might be. Remember this too. This is just a really practical step. Look to Jesus' example in this because Jesus shows us that a gentle word goes a long way. A gentle word goes a long way. There is a time and a place to say a firm word. Don't hear me say, don't ever use your big kid voice. I'm saying Jesus' example is a gentle word goes a long way. Let any of you without sin cast a first stone. How do you think he said that? Do you think he said it mad and bellowing it at the crowd? No, that would have escalated things. I think he said it just like someone you love would say it to you. Let anyone without sin cast a stone. He just says it. He not backing down. He not being a pushover. And in our culture, that is extraordinary to try to apply. Because what is our culture right now? Our culture is you throw the first punch, you win. Is it not? Throw the first punch and you win. Escalate. Say the next awful thing. Whatever form of media you're choosing to use, whatever format you're in, land that first punch and don't stop hammering until you win. That is our day, and that is not our calling, church. Let us be a people who are gentle, clear, firm, but gentle in what we say, especially in our civil discourse. What if Christians, I mean, gosh, this, oh, what if the people who follow Jesus Christ, universally, no matter what context we were in, we were known as people who were thoughtful, and wise, and kind, and gentle with how we engaged in the things that matter the most? What if those were our hallmarks and our calling cards? Because I don't think that's how we're known right now. I especially don't think that's how pastors are known right now. Finally, and remember this, justice is not simply about righting big wrongs in society. It is. But it's also about holding out before God the places where you and I feel like we have been personally wronged, where we have been hurt, where we are waiting for a right to come from something we experience that is deeply wrong. 
And every church I've ever served has had so many people who wrestle with this. And now I'm in a stage in my life where I am too. Why did this happen? Why did I lose my job? Why did my wife divorce me? In my own life, why did my dad die? Why? It feels wrong. Where's the right? That's a justice question, church. That is a personal justice question. God, why would you allow this wrong to continue? My dad died at 63. 63. And so many people have said to me, that's wrong. Because he needed to live 20 more years. He needed more time. And you know what? I agree. It feels wrong. I agree. It is a loss, not just for me personally, but it is a loss for the people who he was giving his life to just a month before he died. He was teaching men in prison. (laughs) Teaching men about Jesus. It feels wrong. That's okay. And every one of us has something that feels wrong. But thank God that our feelings are not in charge of us. Like C.S. Lewis once said, feelings are a good servant but a bad master. And thank God that the God who has been with me and been with my family since my dad died and long before that and will be long after, that he is a God of justice and he will right the wrongs. And I've talked with you guys about this before, how I believe at the end of time, God will right all these wrongs. But until that day, we will partner with God to end injustice and to end the suffering of the world because death will be the last enemy to fall. And maybe then, there'll be more clarity about why these wrongs have happened to us. But the freedom doesn't come from me knowing why my dad is gone. The freedom comes from knowing that the injustice that I may feel is nothing compared to the injustice that was laid upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is nothing compared to the justice that he brought through his resurrection. Frederick Buechner said it so well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest beauty from the greatest sorrow. The greatest beauty from the greatest sorrow. So church, in our seeking of justice, in our cries for it, in our laments in our own hearts, will we say to the God who who made justice, who made the whole world, and through whom the moral arc of the universe, as Martin Luther King said, points toward justice, will we trust him? With the injustices around us, will we entrust him with our sorrow and our questions, why did this happen? Will we hold that out to him? Because if we do, I believe we will be a people who are more serious about justice and more gracious and more merciful in a time when our world desperately needs all of that and more. And I believe everybody in this room is capable of the work of justice and will do so to the glory of God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that the greatest beauty did come from your greatest sorrow. Then when we think about the cross of Christ, it doesn't seem beautiful, it seems awful. And it was an unjust, unmerited thing that happened to him. And yet the punishment that fell on him has and will continue to be our peace. And as people who are following Jesus in just so many different ways, maybe some of us are brand new to this, maybe some of us have been at this a long time, 
we need to be reminded that we can bring our questions, our fears, our hurts, our justice issues to you to say, why did this happen? And we know that even without an answer, you are with us, that your comfort in your presence is greater than any answer. It is. Because who you are is who we long for. So God, when we look at injustice this week, when we look at at kids being hungry, when we look at races being divided, when we looked at nasty things being thrown around in our political discourse, when we look at everything that is contrary to your kingdom and what you want the world to be like, would we respond, not react, respond through prayer, through submission, through a gentle word, through seeking your face? God, continue to be with us now as we worship. We lift up these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen.